Section 1 of The Ring and the Book, An Interpretation by Francis Bickford Hornbrook This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 1. The Ring and the Book The Ring and the Book appeared during the years 1869 and 1870. The earlier parts met with slight favour. The later parts were recognised as works of great power, and on its completion many persons, most competent to judge, saw in it the supreme work of a great genius. It is true that some who had been enthusiastic readers of Browning's earlier poems professed their indifference to this poem. I know of one of these who boasts that he never read The Ring and the Book. It is equally true that this work received cordial praise from many and different quarters. The Athenaeum declared it to be the most precious and profound religious treasure that England has produced since Shakespeare. Sidney Colvin called it a work of pregnant genius. John Morley, one of the ablest critics of England in the 19th century, wrote a discriminating and appreciative review of it, which he has included in his published works. In this, he says, when all is said that can be said about the violences which, from time to time, invade the poem, it remains true that the complete work affects the reader most powerfully with that wide unity of impression which it is the aim of dramatic art, and perhaps of all art, to produce. Dr. R. W. Church, Dean of St. Paul's, who is widely and favourably known as a student and interpreter of Dante, writes in a private letter in 1870, Then came the ring and the book, and that, in the first place, satisfied a longing that I had long had, to have the same set of facts told and dealt with, not as they are in the usual novel or play, that is, with one side assumed to be the true one, but as they appeared to all manner of different people, each with his own prejudices and interests and rules of conduct and judgment, so as to have a little picture of the world judging the facts before it. And next, because I found in it such piercing insight into human realities of thought and feeling, into the depths and heights of the soul, such magnanimity, such pervading sense of judgment. Browning has a poet's eye, the most comprehensive, the most searching, the most minute, for the truths of our present existence and of our future hopes, of any of our great names, Tennyson, Wordsworth, Shelley. Dr. Connop Thirlwall, Bishop of St. David's, and for thirty years the ablest thinker, the greatest scholar, and sanest intellect among the bishops of the Church of England, in one of his letters refers to the ring and the book in the highest terms. He admits, what may prove to be a comfort to many readers, that there are passages in this poem which he did not at once understand. But he attributes this, very properly, to the compactness of expression. As a recognition of the value of the poem, Balliol College, Oxford, conferred upon Mr. Browning the degree of Master of Arts, a more distinguished honour than that of D.C.L., because it makes the recipient a member of the university. Such an honour had been bestowed last upon Dr. Samuel Johnson. In view of the commendation given to this poem, we have no right to pronounce it unworthy our attention and study, or to call it a poem which no one has ever cared to read. When English people sometimes say, as they do, we know nothing about Browning in England, it means only that they, 
and the circle to which they belong, know nothing about him. They do not speak for all England. These opinions, while they sustain me in my own view of the value of the ring and the book, have had no part in the formation of that view, and while what I may think about it cannot add to its value, I am sure that the story of my experience with it will have some interest and encouragement in it for others. It was the first poem of Browning that really impressed me or took hold of me. Before the year 1876, I had read few of his poems, and what I had read had not attracted me. In that year, however, I came across a copy of The Ring and the Book in the library which the owner allowed me to use as my own. On my first reading, I found much in the book which seemed obscure, and I frankly confess that the connection of the thought was not always clear to me. In spite of this, it deeply impressed me, and, in some way, made me conscious that it deserved more careful reading. I found in it so much that appealed to me that I was convinced there must be much more. I determined to read it again when I could give my undivided attention to it. Such a season came a few years later, when I passed my summer vacation in a beautiful and restful part of Maine. Even then, I resolved to read it no longer than my interest lasted. Under these circumstances, I began to read the poem, and continued to read it with unabated enjoyment to the end. I read it, as everyone ought to read poems, for pleasure, and I found it. A strange attraction drew me to it day after day. The only other poem which has exerted the same power over me is The Odyssey. Since then, I have read the poem throughout at least thirty times, and every time with increased pleasure. The more I read it, the more I love it, and the less I find in it to censure. Even now I do not pretend to be able fully and satisfactorily to explain every passage in it. If this be urged against the poem, it is just as true of the great poems of Shakespeare and Milton. What student of either of these poets can explain everything they wrote? Sometimes what is most poetic is least capable of strict definition. But much in the ring in the book that once seemed perplexing has become clear. Often, too, I have found that the obscurities, of which I thought I had reason to complain, were not so much in the poem as in my own mind. Some difficulties, which at first seemed hard to overcome, became easy to surmount as I grew more familiar with the style and method of the poet. Fortunately, it is not necessary to understand everything in a work of art before we can enjoy it. If it were, how many of us could say with any degree of sincerity that we enjoy Goethe's Faust? In reading the poem, several convictions have forced themselves upon me. 1. The Ring and the Book is in harmony with Browning's peculiarly dramatic genius. During the first part of his poetic career, he devoted himself to the preparation of plays for presentation on the stage. For some years his dramas appeared in rapid succession. In one of his poems, he names himself a writer of plays. But these never attained any measure of success with the public. McCready did all he could for Strafford, but even he could keep it on the stage for only a few days. Colomb's birthday and a blot in the scutcheon had the same experience. They met with some esteem, but no enthusiasm. It is sometimes said that Browning did not care for the comparative failure of his plays. I think he did care.
I believe he regretted it very much. He knew he had something to say to the world in that way, and no doubt he deplored the limitations which prevented him from making an impression upon it. There are evidences that he was anxious to succeed and that he did his best. Nor have his plays secured better hearing since his fame as a great poet has become general. From time to time, some of the best actors appear in one or another of his plays, and audiences who admire Browning are attracted. But it is usually evident that the actors do not understand or appreciate the characters they assume, and that the hearers do not experience real enjoyment. Yet many who do not care to see his plays acted, read them again and again with ever-increasing pleasure. It is easy to understand this. Browning had no experience of stagecraft, and he was ignorant of those devices by which plays are made effective in particular parts and as a whole. The stage was something to which he brought his play. He did not live on it. He lacked that practical training of which Shakespeare had so much. But the true cause of his failure as a writer of plays lies deeper than this. It is due to the fact that his characters reflect so much and do so little. We hear what they say, but we never see what they do. They reveal every subtle train of thought and lay bare every hidden motive. Even the most transient emotions find utterance. All this renders them delightful to the reader, but at the same time unintelligible to the hearer. Plays full of mental analysis can never be popular, but Browning excels all other writers of plays in his power to make his characters reveal themselves. He enables his readers to see every movement of their souls. If he has not the genius for making persons act in relation to one another, he has the genius for dramatic monologue, in which a person, through what he says, shows what he essentially is. It was a wise instinct, therefore, that prompted Browning to abandon the dramatic form for the dramatic spirit. In The Ring and the Book, he has dropped methods not in harmony with his nature, which he could not effectively use, and has constructed it in a way that gives ample scope to the full play of his characteristic power. When we come to the poem, everything has been done, and we are asked only to see how the men and women who have taken part in the action make themselves known to us by the way in which they give us their version of the story. 2. The ring in the book is in harmony with the dominant characteristic of our age. No age in the history of the world was ever so much interested in studies of the mind. It is pre-eminently psychological. This appears everywhere. In our histories, which endeavour, through the phenomena of the social and political life of an era, to make us aware of the spirit that produces them, and in our works of fiction, which aim more to reveal the character and the modes of its operation than to provide descriptions of natural scenery or to portray events. Again, this psychological interest shows itself in the numerous studies of mind that are constantly being published and the constant demand for them. From studies of nature, our age has been turning more and more to the study of the mind by which alone nature can be apprehended or comprehended. Now, it is the test of a great work of genius that, while it is above the thought of the time in which it was written, it also responds to that thought. The Iliad and the Odyssey reflect the prevailing conditions of thought and feeling in the times when they appeared. 
Dante's Divine Comedy bears witness to the politics and religious thought of its age. Milton's Paradise Lost is an indication of the powerful influence of the Puritan spirit. It is to be expected that a great poem, belonging to the last third of the nineteenth century, should show, in its mood and spirit, the dominance of the psychological interest, and the ring in the book fulfils that expectation. From beginning to end, it is an insight into, and a revelation of, the heights and depths of human nature. The poet himself seems conscious of this when he says, speaking of the poem, it lives, if precious be the soul of man to man. 3. The ring in the book shows also the influence of the spirit of historic criticism. It is sometimes said that one cannot tell to what age the poetry of Browning belongs. Anyone who reads that poetry, with his eyes open, must know better. Not to speak of other poems, the ring in the book could not have been written in any other century of the world's history. The way in which it treats its theme is necessarily connected with a time that is sceptical as to the ability of one man or one party to tell the whole truth about any matter, a time that seeks to examine many accounts before it forms a final opinion about a man, or a party, or a sect. Until within a comparatively few years, the writing of history depended on any account that had come into the hands of the historian. No attempt was made to pierce the letter of the record, or to get at the conditions which might disturb the impartiality of its author. It was tacitly assumed that Tacitus told the whole truth about the Caesars, and that Eusebius told the whole truth about the leaders of heretical sects. But now the historian makes the record before him only the starting point for his investigation. He tries to go behind the record, and to get at the peculiarities, the likes and dislikes of the writer, or the political and religious prejudices and prepossessions which swayed him. He uses him simply as one way of getting at the real truth. He compares his account, if possible, with the accounts of others. He realises how hard it is for one person to tell the whole truth. Now, in The Ring and the Book, we have an illustration and manifestation of this spirit of historic criticism which everywhere prevails. The poet does not allow the reader to remain satisfied with one version of the story which underlies his poem. He shows us how various persons, of different characters and interests, tell it, and he causes these to unfold themselves in their narratives. We may not learn from them more about the actual facts, but we know better the thoughts of many hearts. The different stories also enable us to attain to a juster, because completer, knowledge of what actually happened. In this way the poem is a grand example of the spirit of historic criticism. Mark Patterson, in his Life of Milton, makes it clear that, being the man he was, and living at the time and in the country he did, Milton could not have chosen a better subject than the one he took in Paradise Lost. So may it be said of Browning, that one endowed with his peculiar genius, and living in an age animated by psychological interest and historic criticism, could not have done better than to write a poem like The Ring and the Book, in just the way he did write it, for it is an expression of what is best in himself, and also a response to the imperative demand of the dominant spirit of his time. End of chapter 1